Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and my guest today is Rabbi Levi Atson, and our topic is gratitude and attitude are not challenges, they are choices. If you would like to get hold of us and send any questions in, please do so on 34519 or WhatsApp us on 61 um, yesterday when I was on radio, I apologize for my voice sounding a bit croaky. It's still not quite right, so if I don't sound like I normally sound, uh, just bear with me, please. Hello, Rabbi Afton. It is so good to see you. Hello, Sue. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you It's been doing? a while. It has been a while. You know, is this the first time this year, I think, actually? No, second, at least. Not at least. Maybe the second only. <laughs> second yes. only. Yeah. I've missed you. And uh, you're in the middle of major changes at uh, Linksfield. Rabbi Levi Aftson is the associate rabbi at Linksfield uh, Shul and has got this huge project on at the moment. How is your attitude towards that? <laughs> Transition is, uh, it helps you discover parts of yourself you never knew existed. Uh, I always liken it. I remember hearing an analogy of Columbus discovering America, that Columbus didn't discover any... In other words, Columbus didn't create America. He just discovered it. It was always there. So the same thing with our personality. We have an entire universe, but unless we go exploring, there are continents that lay unexplored. So true. And sometimes we start exploring by choice, and sometimes we explore by accident. I mean, Columbus thought he was going to the India, and yet he thought he met the Indians. That's why we still call them Indians. And he ended up in the United States. Often we, we, our life takes us to interesting exploration. And I think often it's during times of transition, whatever kind of transition a person goes through, that you start discovering other continents. Some of them are beautiful, and some of them are... Very challenging. Some of them are very challenging. Some are swamps. And some are gorgeous landscapes. That is so true. And I think that um, unless we open ourselves to the experience, we're not going to ever see those landscapes because sometimes you've got to go into the swamps to actually literally fight your way out of them to to get to the beauty of mm. what lays, lies beyond. Yeah, and, and if you think about the fact that each and every one of us is creating the image of God, so in some way or another, each one of us was taught, touched by infinity. And yet our perception of ourself is extremely finite. Yes. So by default, one thing I could guarantee all of us is we don't know ourselves nearly. Um, we don't know our inner universe. We, you know, like for many years, the human being lived in a small area of the Middle East called, called a Fertile Crescent. And they thought that that was the entire universe. And eventually they branched down to Africa and up to Europe and um, east to Asia. Eventually that wasn't enough. And they, they moved to the Americas and to Australia, Antarctica, the moon, space, Mars. In other words, this idea that the universe is just so much to explore. And the sages say, the olam katan zehadam, that the human being is a small universe. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, if we're not willing to walk and start exploring and we're uh, unaware of what we might uncover, we'll cover beautiful things and we'll uncover things that need to be worked with in order to be beautiful. Um, then we will discover a tremendous, tr- tremendous part of ourselves that we're unaware of now. Mm. That is so true. You know, there's a, that Talmudic proverb which says, who is rich? Those who rejoice in their own lot. Now, that lot can change, as you said, all the time as we're moving through life, you know, each year. And sometimes I actually feel that sometimes day by day uh, we are actually being challenged to. So there was a cynical guy who said, I prefer, I'm also joyous with my a lot. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's much easier when I have a lot to be joyous with my lot. But, um, yeah, each day we wake up and our lot is differently. Um, and each lot allows us to uncover something else. And I think God, during our lifetime, will offer us many opportunities of uncovering and activating different parts of ourselves. And if we allow the process to do that, then we'll be able to live a life of pure activation. Mm. And that is not always easy. Because I think sometimes doubt comes in. We actually, I have a, a couple of YouTubes, very short ones for us to watch. One by Brene Brown. To listen, and, not to watch. No, no, sorry, to listen. And, um, and then one by uh, Rabbi Twersky on suffering. Both very short, but both uh, with a very good message that's, that actually says to us, you know, what, what, are we choosing to do in our attitude and with gratitude and um, this from Rabbi Sachs um, it's it's uh, Yitra I think uh, Judaism is, is gratitude with attitude uh, cured of letting other people's happiness diminish our own we release a wave of positive energy allowing us to celebrate what we have and be what we are instead of wanting to be what we are not it's Israel's 70th birthday, and that deserves a party. So come and join the whole community at Huddle Park to celebrate Yom Ha'atzmaut like never before. We've got food, drinks, a carnival for the kids, fireworks, plus a huge show featuring performances from the schools, leading local vocalists, and the Solomon Brothers from Israel. It all kicks off on Wednesday the 18th at 5 p.m. Whether you're a Chay or a Habibi, let's celebrate 70 together. Brought to you by the South African Zionist Federation. I think the relationship between joy and gratitude was one of the most important things I found, I found in the research. Um, I wasn't expecting it, um, but what I found, you know, 12 years of research, um, 11,000 pieces of data, I, ha- I did not interview in all that time a person who would describe themselves as joyful or describe their lives as joyous who did not actively practice gratitude. Um, and for me, it was very counterintuitive because I kind of went into the research thinking that the relationship between joy and gratitude was, if you're joyful, then you should be grateful. But it wasn't that way at all. It was really that practicing gratitude invites joy into our lives. And when I say practice, I think this is, this is the part that really changed my life. It changed my family and the way we live every day. When I say practice gratitude, I don't mean kind of like the attitude of gratitude or feeling grateful. I mean practicing gratitude. These folks shared in common a tangible gratitude practice. 
They either kept gratitude journals. Um, some of them did interesting things like at one, two, three, four, like at 1234 every day, they said something out loud that they were grateful for. They, um, one of the things that we do, like we say grace at dinner. And so now after grace, we go around and everyone in my family says something they're grateful for. I mean, and what's interesting is when we first started, I have um, a first grader, a first grade son, Charlie, and eighth grade daughter, Alan. And at first I thought, and we've been doing it for a couple of years now, like they're like, oh God, mom. And there was a little like, this is, you know, are you experimenting on us? There was a little bit of that. But now what's interesting, even after we did it for like a couple of weeks, that on those crazy busy nights where we're trying to like get to soccer and piano and homework and Steve and I are just like, we say a quick prayer and we start eating and my kids are like, whoa, what are you grateful for? And it's been extraordinary because not only absolutely does it invite more joy into our house, um, it also is such a soulful window into what's going on in my kids' lives. You know, so there are some days where my eighth grader will be like, I'm joyful that there's a huge thick wall between my room and my brother's room. You know, something <laughs> very, you know, honest. But there are other days she'll say, you know, she had a friend whose mother recently died. Um, and she said, you know, for a month she would say, I'm just so grateful that y'all are healthy right now. You know, and so not only did it make us all more aware of what we had and more willing to slow down and really be thankful for the joyful moments we had, but it let me know where she was emotionally in her life. You know, and my son is, is always, you know, I'm grateful for bugs, I'm grateful for frogs, but sometimes he'll say, you know, I'm grateful that you picked me up early, or, you know, I'm grateful that I finally understand adjectives, <laughs> you know? So it's, there's a great quote um, that says, it's not gratitude, it's not joy that makes us grateful, it's gratitude that makes us joyful. And um, it's by a Jesuit brother, a Jesuit priest. And I guess I was just amazed to find that bubble up so strongly in the research. It's life-changing. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and I'm with Rabbi Levi Atzon, and you've just heard Brene Brown talking, uh, giving her uh, talk on gratitude there, and actually it was Rabbi Atzon who initially introduced me to Brene Brown with her very uh, well-known uh, TED talk on um, authenticity. Do you remember Vulnerability. That? Vulnerability, that's right, I always say authenticity. Um, there's a Hebrew term for gratitude. I've just checked with you how to pronounce it, and it's hakarat hatob, which literally means recognizing the good. Now, do you think this is something that has to be practiced? Yeah, because it's counterintuitive. Not counterintuitive. It's counter-natural. What, human, was, what is natural? So natural, I mean, we have two different natures. Okay, let's, let's go Kabbalistic for a moment. Mm-hmm. We have our higher self or our lower self. And today the truth is it's not only in Kabbalistic literature, it's in modern psychological literature, and it's standard understanding of the human being that we have higher self, lower self, or <clears throat> mature self, immature self, human self, animal self, whatever it is. But the lower self, the person that we become when we are not mind over matter, when we're not conscious, when we're not mindful, is a person that's defensive and weak 
and petty. We all have that somewhere. M- many of us hopefully worked on it a bit and were able to discipline it, but at times it still surfaces. That's the human condition. When a person is tapped into that nature, the nature of the lower self, then acknowledging the good in others is very hard because somehow our brain came up with a very stupid idea, and that is if you're good, then it makes me bad. In other words, by complimenting you, I'm I'm degrading me. That's the petty self. Mm -hmm. The mature self says no. By complimenting you, I uplift you, and I feel uplifted as well. But that's only when a person's coming from a space of healthy self-esteem. But when our lower self is activated, it doesn't understand that. And it, it, it understands a language that says, if I acknowledge the good in you, I become lesser. Mm-hmm. So there's a beautiful word in Yiddish. It's called fargin. And fargin means literally to be happy and feel good for someone else's success. Now, naturally, or at least lower nature, it's very hard. Mm. The other person wins the lottery. The other person is having nachas from their kids. The other person is, is healthy, etc. Sometimes we'll struggle. We'll struggle with being happy. And even if we put on that face, um, my, my teacher always used to call it the, the smile of a stewardess. I'm like, I'm so happy for you. What would you like? Um, I won't it's be hard. able to see a stewardess again without thinking of that. <laughs> yeah, hundred um, percent. It's hard, mm. and that's why Hakara Satayv does take work because it's in our DNA that we'll always struggle between the higher self and lower self, and we will fall down to that lower self. And it's interesting because we're talking about this in the parsha, which really the theme of this parsha this week is gossip and the consequences of gossip. And that's what gossip is. It's the same thing. It's like, why am I talking negative about you? Because I'm trying to pick myself up. Mm. By def- so the opposite is true as well, psychologically. Mm. And that is, if I say good things about you, I'm putting myself down. That's the petty self. That's why we gossip. But if a person can come to an awareness that says, your success doesn't make me less, and the true greatness is allowing each person to live their life and be happy for them and not seeing their success as a threat to you, then we could have Akara Satov. But if I'm so insecure that I just see the world as a threat to me and everyone else's success is undermining to me, yeah, that's a struggle. It, uh, it is an absolute struggle. So, you know, what you're actually saying is that gratitude can't really exist with arrogance or selfishness or victimhood, uh, resentment, yes. jealousy. With, a, with an unhealthy sense of self. Mm-hmm. It all boils down to that unhealthy sense of self. And I think with social media and Facebook and even the billboards, uh, I, I was driving off the highway the other day and there was a billboard of a beautiful Audi uh, and there was a, a, a car next to me which was a real beaten up car and I thought you know I wonder what they're thinking looking at that billboard of this incredible Audi so I think there's so much that does bombard us with with what is good well you know what is termed good by society 100% and that what are we lacking therefore you know because of what we're seeing out there. And, and somehow it, it also it sells the message that if you don't have it, you're less of a person. In other mm. words, if you don't have this mattress, 
you're not sleeping well at night and you're not treating your wife well. And if you don't um, have this water machine in your house, then you're not hydrated and you're becoming grouchy. And like it's, <laughs> it's pretty much it's telling us that everything out there changes who we are. And yeah, and we, our sense of identity is often lessened. And, you know, you can see it in in mothers with their children and going to all the different extramural activities and what have you, having to have the right uniform, the right boots, the right dance shoes, you know, all of that um, when they'd be just as happy being in a tracksuit. Um, doing that, you know, but they're being taught, no, you've got to be the same as everyone else in order to fit in and be happy. So we actually do our children a disservice, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to drop, uh, drop. we're going to end now, uh, go to advert, and we've got someone coming on, Rabbi Twersky. One of the mysteries of life is suffering. Now, if people just believe that the world is an accident, there is no God, whatever, and suffering happens, so it happens, right? So there is no purpose in suffering, it just happens. Right? If a person believes that the world was created by God and that God controls the world, then become what becomes very serious, and that is a benevolent God, right? And a benevolent God, why does he allow people to suffer? Right? How can I trust a God who allows people to suffer? My answer to that partially came uh, from an uh, incident that happened in pediatrician's office. Right? And there's a, in the waiting room, there's a little child, happy child, you know, bubbly, playing, smiling. And he came in, who, the mother brought him for his second or third immunization. Well, as soon as the doctor came out in his white coat, the kid took one look at the doctor and yeah! He knows what to go in this guy. This guy's up to no good. Right? It's the guy who goes around stabbing little kids. Right? So he holds on to his mother tightly, right? And the mother picks him up and walks into the treatment room, right? And he starts kicking the mother, right? And he can't understand, how, what happened with my mother? Why is she doing this to me? Right? He has no way of understanding that this pain that he's going to go through is going to uh, somehow save his life, right? The interesting thing is, after the doctor stabs him, gives him the shot, the child grabs the mother, right? And I said, well, why are you... Why are you trying to find security in your mother? Isn't she the one who collaborated with the monster? Yeah, the child can't figure that out, right? But he knows that his security is in the mother. When I suffer, I don't understand why God is doing this to me. I feel I don't deserve it, right? And I may be angry at God, but even if I'm angry at God, it's like the child with the mother. He's still my security. I don't understand it. I don't think that if we believe that God runs the world, that we can ever have an understanding of suffering that makes sense. I just have to leave it up to faith. God knows what he's doing. I don't understand it. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. Hello, um, it's Sue Jackson on Finding Human. You know, you were talking just now about um, how if we praise someone else, we are recognizing other people's strengths, we begin to doubt our own, or we, we, then that's what stops us. And there is that syndrome called the imposter syndrome, which many of us have and many people suffer from. Um, it's the feeling that we don't deserve success. 
And I'm sure you have uh, come across that. And Rabbi Sachs talks about Aaron, who was ashamed and fearful of approaching the altar. Uh, and Moses said to him, why are you ashamed? It was for this that you were chosen. But he himself could only see his faults and what he had done wrong and could not believe that he was going to be chosen to to lead people. Yeah, there's an interesting irony about modern man, if you will. I mean, there's a lot of ironies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and maybe it's not modern. Maybe it's always been here. Um, I wouldn't know. And that is, on the one hand, we a lot of us struggle with self-esteem. A lot of us struggle with believing that we're the right person for the right position. I can be a good husband. I can be a good mom. I can be a good teacher. I can be a good leader. I can be efficient. I can wake up in the morning, whatever. And on the other hand, we have a tremendous expectations of life. In other words, we expect life to be on cruise control and just sweet and delicious. And the second a little mishap happens or a big mishap, it it's overwhelms us. Hashtag overwhelmed. It's like the word that everyone uses. I'm just telling you, I'm so overwhelmed. It's like I, I'm not coping. It's overwhelmed and I'm not coping, the two big uh, slogans of our time. And maybe it's two sides of the same syndrome, this inability to believe that we can cope. This inability to believe that we are up for the challenge. And therefore, the second the challenges happen, often we just become like a little uh, flaky. We become very flaky. We, we become, we lose our confidence. Mm. And I think, what, like, if we could let go of that idea that the human being is weak and that the human being can't cope. If we let go of the idea that we were born to just cruise through life, we were born to make a difference. And because we were born to make a difference, sometimes making a difference is through challenges, not sometimes, most of the time. It's the very fabric of the the world that darkness leads to light, that a new day arises after darkness, that... Every beautiful thing that happened in our life came through challenges. You don't build a beautiful marriage without difficult days, and you don't raise children without difficult nights and days, and you don't, etc., etc., etc. But when a person feels so unable to cope, and a person feels that life has to be just perfect, and the second there's a challenge, I fall apart, then how can you have gratitude in your life? Because your expectation is, a hundred, and you're constantly being disappointed. In other words, I expect to wake up today, no phone call is going to be difficult, N none of my family members are going to have issues with me, nothing's going to be, you know, nothing of my personality is going to be confronted, etc., etc., etc. You're guaranteed to be disappointed. Unless you're living like a hermit in a cave. Here's pretty much what I guarantee you. You woke up this morning, you're going to face challenges. I'm not saying they have to be, please God, and not harsh challenges, but they're challenges. Mm. An awkward conversation, a small health mishap, um, a you, phone call a you phone call you went, yeah, your car runs out of petrol, but pretty much you wake up in the morning with a, here's what, like, you know, they say there's two things about life that are definite, death and taxes. <laughs> <laughs> there's another thing, and that is that there'll be happy moments and there'll be difficult moments. And how can a person have gratitude when they're just expecting life to be something it isn't. I mean, please God, when Mashiach comes, it will be. But as long as we're here in these, you know, in this time, 
beauty happens through challenges. And so, therefore, how how would you um, teach your children to have the attitude of gratitude? By giving them a realistic expectation of life. That means, obviously, I do believe in protecting kids. But to what extent? Mm. From their, the consequence of their actions, to what extent? That means w- 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 when a kid has a difficult day in school and they're coming home and the mommy or the daddy are just like, oh, shame, oh, my God. Pa, pa, pa. Now, there's nothing wrong with empathy, but there's a big difference between empathy and turning into the, a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the kid says, oh, my God, a bad day is a tragedy. Oh, boy, this is, this is – life really is like I'm a, I should expect something. Mm-hmm. I should expect perfection. I think a well, lot of parents are... Have, because you had a bad day, I'll buy you uh, what the latest uh, toy might be. A hundred percent. But like, and parents are protecting the kid. The kid doesn't make the A-team and they go screaming at the sport manager. Or the kid does, is not the valedictorian and they're farabled with the school for the next 20 years, etc. And I would argue that your kid not making it to the top team is building in them better resilience than if they made it to the top team. Mm. And that means sometimes, I'm sorry if I'm sounding a bit uh, masochist, I want my kids to struggle. I don't want everything to be easy. I want the struggles to be proportionate. I don't want them to be, heaven forbid, extremely painful and debilitating. But I don't want my kids, or for that matter, any human being to have a, just an easy life. Because here's one thing I guarantee you. It's not going to be like that every day. No, absolutely. Like, you know, you'll ple- be disappointed your whole life. A hundred percent. And you'll never have gratitude mm-hmm. because, what do you mean? From, and, and think about it. Our, this generation is struggling with relationships more than any other generation. Why? Many reasons. One of the fundamental reasons is I was never taught to ch- deal with challenges. And suddenly it's impossible to build a marriage without challenges. Right? Absolutely. I don't care what the movies say. I don't care what the novels say. <laughs> I don't care songs. what your fantasy <laughs> says. Yeah. Like I, I just here's one thing. A long term relationship with anybody, spouse, child, siblings is complicated. It just is. By definition, it's complicated. Complicated is a struggle. How in the world? There will always be dynamics in a family. 100%. Anyway. So, how are you going to cope with that if you were told from the youngest age that you, my child, were born to be cushioned in cotton wool for the rest of your life? And that you don't have to be grateful for anything because you should expect it. How do the advertisements go? You deserve happiness. You deserve a trip to the Bahamas. You deserve this kind of car. What a second. Since when does a human being get born with a list of deservings? So true. I'd like to tell you about a, a man that I met in Krakow in Poland many years ago. He was a survivor. And um, he... He asked if he could talk to me, and I said certainly. And we, it was we just had Havdalah in Krakow, um, and it was the most beautiful. All these the youth were there, and they were singing, and these candles were lit, and they all went inside, and they were drum. They were doing a drumming session and a singing session, and I sat outside under the. The Polish moon, and I thought to myself, I, you know, it's just so wonderful to hear singing in Poland, Jewish singing, Jewish uh, youngsters singing. Just then an, a man came up to me and said, could he sit with me for a while? And I said, certainly. And he came and he sat with me and he told me that he was a survivor. And uh, he he told me part of his story, not all, but a few days later we were at Belzec. 
and at the concentration camp. And he was there with his daughter and his granddaughter. And the reason why he had come was because of his granddaughter. He had never spoken about it before, but his granddaughter asked him to please come. And this was really going from this unbelievable darkness towards light eventually. Uh, but that was his choice, the going towards the light. And at Belzec, we went up and he, I walked with him up to where his family's names were on, uh, written down and he just put his, his whole body on it and he just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. It was a very painful thing to watch, but I think very liberating for him to be able to do. Anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, I was uh, I was with him and his family, and then in Jerusalem, uh, uh, about a week later, we were staying at the same hotel, and he called me over to his table where more of his family had joined him, and um, he said, uh, you know what, he said, that was death, this is life. And he was like a different person. In Poland, he almost went back into that um, prisoner uh, of himself. And suddenly in Jerusalem, he became whole again. And there would always be that emptiness inside him of everyone that he had lost. But he recognized the light and he was so grateful for it. And to me, that was one of the greatest lessons of gratitude that I have ever witnessed in my life. For someone to come from such unbelievable loss, to have the strength to start another family, and to eventually go back to that horror and, and, and into the light. Incredible. Um, I think in many ways that's the story of our people. It is. Having a Pesach Seder in the concentration camp and celebrating Hanukkah in, the, in communist Russia, whatever it was, we always managed – like think about it. Why are you celebrating redemption in the darkness of Auschwitz? Why are you lighting Hanukkah candles in a Russian gulag? Why are you keeping Shabbos en route, um, you know, on the cattle cars? Because somehow what these people understood, and I think it's in, in our DNA, is that there's always room to be grateful for something. Do you know, I heard it's, it's the, now that you're saying that, I heard someone the other day and it was actually on High of Him and I couldn't get the whole uh, quote, but it was something about um, how Judaism actually opens up to, to gratitude, uh, uh, even just by starting with the morning prayer. Moderni. Moderni, yeah. Would you say that's true? That's of course. Right I mean, from the beginning, you're thanking Hashem, God, for bringing your soul back into you again in the morning. And think about it, That's the most basic thing to be grateful. Like you're, you're pretty much, you're not thinking him yet, although you will later on, thank you for giving me clothes and thank you for giving me strength, etc. And that's it. You, you're being grateful to be alive. Mm-hmm. And for, in, not my opinion, I think in common sense, that's the greatest gratitude you have. And think about it. You know, I was, we were discussing yesterday in Shul the laws of honoring one's parents. And let's be honest, in the 21st century, most people walk around not thinking that their parents were perfect. I don't know how it was in the 18th century, but <laughs> after <laughs> after many hours of therapy, we've come to an epiphany, and that is our parents are imperfect. Um, and a lot of people struggle with that commandment. I would say that in many ways, the fifth and the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, 
which again is the idea of gratitude, and the idea of honoring parents are the two hardest commandments to keep. And what Torah tells us is, why should you honor your parents? Because they gave you the biggest gift that a human being can ever bestow on another human being, and that's life. Mm-hmm. Now, it could be the moment they gave birth to you, they were miserable, and they haven't given you one sweet day ever since. And yes, you know, it's important to work through that. But the gratitude that we can have to our parents is incomparable. Imagine someone right now walked over to you and gave you a billion dollars. You'd be very grateful for a long time, unless you were a real narcissist and you thought you deserved it. Our parents gave us the biggest gift, and that is the gift to be born. Mm-hmm. Although in America today, I understand there's people suing their parents for, for bringing them into this world. No, is that so? 100%. What do you mean? Like, uh, uh, you didn't ask my choice. Wow, so it wasn't free choice. Yeah, 100%. Like now I have to deal with all my issues and I have to deal with all the struggles of life. I never signed up for this. Just because you wanted to perpetuate your DNA into the planet. <laughs> <laughs> if you have any SMSs or WhatsApps to ask Rabbi Atsano any questions or give your suggestions, um, you can SMS us on 34519 or WhatsApp us on 061 So, Rabbi, let's go on to the expectations of life. I mean, if this is what you're saying in America, that they're saying that they didn't have the choice to be born, where does expectations of life come in? Of course. Think about that person who's suing the parents. In other words, their life hasn't turned out to be glamorous. Chances are you're not suing your parents if life is good. Now, we're sold a narrative in the Western world that an imperfect life is not a life worth living. What's a life worth living? Being an entrepreneur, being successful, being able to write an autobiography that's watched by millions, read by millions, um, making it to Hollywood, making it to the Forbes 400, etc., Right? That's the people we idolize. That When we say the definition of success, those are the people that are labeled in there. So... That's an expectation that we created, that life is supposed to be either successful in what we term successful, or it's a failure. And then I'll sue my parents for setting me up for this. Without realizing that life, just breathing is a, is a gift, and it's already worth living. Mm. The small accomplishments of life, small relationships, which are not so small, having a, a good relationship with your sibling teaching yourself how to you know how to to be kinder those are the real accomplishments i think we live in an age that we we're taught to just respect the super successful people right which speakers will get a lot of people to come the the founders of multi uh, billion dollar companies on the stock exchange etc mm-hmm. etc Let, let's listen to this person they've made it onto sitcom in hollywood without appreciating that's not the real successes of life. The real successes of life are the ones that are real. Your a good marriage, a good marriage, a relationship with yourself, a relationship with God, overcoming your temptation to be jealous, to be, to be petty, your low self-esteem, overcoming all that. That's where the real accomplishment, and the interesting thing is very often you'll watch um, interviews with people who were so-called successful, but not in their 30s, in their 60s. And almost inevitably, they all say the same thing. I've come to appreciate that the real things in life are my children, my marriage, 
um, et cetera, et cetera, because one day we wake up and we realize we were sold a false narrative. And we were sold false depression. In other words, we got depressed because we didn't hit a certain peak. But that wasn't a peak worth hitting. Mm-hmm. Definitely not our peak. And had we climbed our mountain and accomplished our challenges and realized that life is not supposed to be anything other than it is and live our life that was destined for us, we would be happier. Our own unique life. A hundred percent. There is no litmus test of a successful life based on anybody else. The only litmus test to look at is your own life. Well, you know, there's that saying that uh, the day you were born is the day God decided the world could not exist without you. Yeah. And I think the day you become aware of that is, is the, the day that you start living. Um, and it's probably the day you die, too. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Stay relevant and up to date. Keep informed. This is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and I'm with Rabbi Levi Upson, and we are having a, a good talk about gratitude and attitude. And, um, you know, we were just saying that tomorrow is Yoma Zikaron, and then, then it's Yoma Atzmot. Now, if you look at it, both of those are also gratitude and attitude, aren't they? Loss. Uh, actually recognizing literally what our world is about. Yeah, and, 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 and having gratitude for the soldiers um, uh, who Would gave their like life for us. Would you like to explain for people who don't yes. understand? So Yomazi Karon Karo- so is when we commemorate um, all the people who were lost, um, whether through military engagements, p- soldiers, or people killed in terror attacks for, this, for, the, um, for the sake of our holy land. And it's a day of deep reflection and appreciating what these people have done and realizing that these people gave their life up for something which obviously meant a lot to them and to appreciate that their sacrifice allows us to live our lives. Um, and then the next day we go on to celebrate our lives and what they have fought for. Correct. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, does it take death for us to appreciate life? You know, on that note, I'd actually like to just mention my brother. It's his yotzat tomorrow. And uh, he fought death a lot of his life. He really did. But at the same time, he lived life. And uh, he was waiting towards the end of his life for a heart, which just never came. But he never gave up on it. And he never gave up on humor. And the last Saturday that he was actually with us, you have to walk upstairs to our house. And he came in. I was getting things ready in the kitchen, and he came through, and he said to me, I don't think I'll be able to come again on a Saturday because I can't. And he was very breathless. He said, I can't come up the stairs anymore. And I said to him, "Uh, Don, you know, they're the boys, my sons. You know, they will help carry you up the stairs. And he laughed, and actually the two of us had a good laugh at what he said. He said, come to think of it, I guess I carried them often enough (laughs) when they were small. And, you know, it was, here he was anticipating that this was going to be his last Saturday. It was like an anticipatory grief, really, of his life. And yet he was still able to find humor in it. 
And it, it taught me a huge lesson also of, of attitude. And I know you spent a lot of time of your life in hospice. Yes. Um, you know, dealing with people who are moving on to, to a different world. And what are they grateful for at that time? You know, relationships. And it all boils down to finding meaning, purpose, and where do they find meaning and purpose? In the relationships and in what they have hand, given to life. Um, they begin to recognize what life has given them, which is in the relationships and what they have. And it's crazy but, because, sorry, if I, I'm sorry for mm-hmm. cutting in. Which school talks about relationships? <laughs> in other words, we, from the youngest age, we drill our kids about a certain life, what to expect from life, how to be successful in life. And then one day they wake up and they weren't taught about real life. No, they weren't never. taught about the, not only the importance, that it's all about relationships. Mm-hmm. It really is. A relationship with your creator and a relationship with your fellow human being. That is the only thing in life that gives us deep satisfaction. And the relationship with ourselves, beginning 100%. to understand ourselves, which is a lifelong lesson. I met someone the other day in Israel, actually, quite a while ago, um, who was well in their 90s, and they were still searching for parts of themselves. They said they still knew that there were parts that they didn't quite understand yet, and they were prepared to go on living until they found it. That was beautiful. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful that you still search right to the end. Rabbi, just tell me about leadership. What do you feel that as a leader, and you are a leader of a community? Trying to be. You And you're doing a good job. And uh, what I would like to know from you is what do you think a leader can actually teach people? Explain. And the learn question. themselves. In, in the context of gratitude. Yes. And attitude. Are there expectations of a leader? Think about what happened with Brexit, where the leaders of uh, Europe sat in Brussels and made decisions without listening to the constituents and without actually taking sensitivity. Think about the Trump revolution, whatever you're going to think about them. A lot of what's happening in our world today is a disconnect between leaders and their people. They're not grounded. What we call the ivory tower what we call uh, elitist. You know, there's a famous expression from one of the Israeli politicians when he was voted out of power. He says, I think we have to change the people. <laughs> like, instead of changing the leadership, <laughs> we have to change the people because, you know, like, it's the wrong people. They're choosing the wrong leaders. They're the wrong people. A very cynical approach to people. You know, and that's where communism comes from. We're pretty much the idea that a few geniuses, socialism, a few geniuses are going to rule everybody because they have it all figured out because everyone else is a bunch of Idiots, sorry. Um, a very condescending approach and not being appreciating the people and not being grateful for the contributions that each person has. In other words, when you start seeing yourself more indispensable than the people you lead, then you're not a leader. And you know, when you're saying that, I, I kind of realize that listening and being silent are perhaps a great attribute to a leader. And I don't know if you know that listening and silent actually have the same um, letters. Interesting. Uh, it is interesting. I will, I'll say more than that. I don't really believe in leadership. I'll explain what I mean. Today, leadership has been turned into a noun, a verb, but as if it's something separate of who you are. 
by definition, if you're a good leader of yourself, you'll be a good leader of others. You can't fake leadership. I don't think leadership is anything to aspire to. I think it's about the more you you develop your own self-esteem and your self-worth, the more you work on your own ethos and your own journey. By default, that evolves into leadership. There are people who grab the mantle of leadership that are unready, but ultimately they go down like Zuma. But I also believe that a lot of times that imposter syndrome, that feeling of am I really worthy of being a leader, you know, should I be in this position, also comes in and you have to fight it. 100%. I don't know about you, but I know in my own life when I've been put in a leadership position, um, <clears throat> I've often thought, oh, my gosh, am I really worthy of this? But again, but the reason I don't like the word leadership is because when we think of leadership, we're thinking of leading a company, leading a community, mm. leading a social group. But the truth is you're a leader of your own life. Absolutely. But that's, by definition, life is leadership. You're a leader of your family. Mm. You're a leader in some way of your social group. You're a leader of, yeah, of, 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 of so many different inter, interplays and interdynamics. So this idea of putting leadership as a pedestal, like, you know, the Steve Jobs of the world or the Mandelas of the world, as if that's leadership, that's one facet of leadership. Each and every one of us is called upon to be a leader. And like, I'll, I, I want to just share the thought. I shared it on the radio a long time ago. We're told that each blade of grass has an angel that hits it and says, grow up. Mm. <laughs> now, if each blade of grass has an a, 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 a angel that hits it and says, Gadal, grow up, how much more so each and every one of us? Absolutely. Where That's each lovely. and every one of us has an angel that comes and tells us, lead. Lead yourself. Mm. Believe that you're good enough to be a parent, and you're good enough to be a friend, and you're good enough to be a community member. And you're good and, enough to be in this world. And you're good enough to, be, to wake up this morning. And you are, in many ways, indispensable, not in a selfish, um, self, you know, self-righteous yeah, self or you know, greatness, but you're worth it. You're worthy. Amen to that. We've got to just wait for an advert. A frequency like no other. 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson with Rabbi Levi Atzon. And the time is going quickly. It always does go quickly. I just wanted to just want go back to leadership, what Rabbi Sachs actually uh, quoted. He said, a leader is one who, though he may stumble and fall, arises more honest, humble, and courageous than he was before. I would just change that, that one word. Uh, not leader. a leader, a human being. I was just going to say the same. <laughs> you and I picked up on his other's thoughts. You know, I was thinking about a collective attitude in a story I once heard about um, the the Battle of uh, the Somme, I think it was, in France, um, 104 years ago now. And it was a, a group of, of um, soldiers, obviously a lot of soldiers, um, British, Belgium, French soldiers who all put down their rifles. They stepped out of the straight trenches and actually spent Christmas mingling with their German enemies along the Western line. And uh, apparently there was huge um, misery of daily life in, 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 in the dull, wet uh, trenches and what have you. And a huge uh, a group of them decided that they were going to actually put down their their rifles for the day and the, the story goes that um, it, it broke out simultaneously across the trenches and that some two-thirds of the troops about a hundred thousand people are believed to have participated in the legendary truce 
and they even sang uh, songs, you know, carols and things, which shows what collective attitude can do. And I think that's something we often don't realize that our attitude as we walk in to a room, to uh, uh, whether we're going to a bar mitzvah, a gathering, whatever it is, our attitude as we come in can actually define a lot of other people around us, how they are going to respond. Absolutely. And yeah, as a society, if we're walking around people that are grateful for being alive, we'd live in a much happier world. So on saying that, do you believe that we need to be very careful of the people that we surround ourselves with? <sighs> I would say it differently. Such a big sigh. I would say it differently because I think as much as we have to be careful, we also have to live in this world and affect this world. I think we have to be careful of the people that we allow to affect us. That means the people we're around, some people were there to affect them. Mm. The people we take in energy from should be people with the right attitude. The people we give energy from to should be everybody. Please, God. And if you actually think about it, we never do know each day who we're going to encounter. And in our demeanor, we can actually affect that encounter. Absolutely. You know, you can walk up to somebody at the, the cashier at the till. And just by saying good morning or whatever, you know, uh, whatever you want to say, something just to rec- a bit of recognition for for the, them as being a person, mm. I think can change their day and your own day. Absolutely. And if we could just get into the habit of saying modani every morning, just saying mm. thank you. Mm. Wake mm. up and the first words that come out of your mouth is, I think. Thank you. Absolutely. I have to agree with you. And I do believe that each person handles life differently and each person are given uh, different lessons. And some people will struggle to come to some sort of meaning in their life after a tragedy or, or and others might move into that, you know, quicker. But each of us has our own way of dealing with whatever's happening in our lives and, and hopefully moving forward. Uh, one step at a time. Do Absolutely. you believe in one step at a time? <laughs> Two steps forward, one step back. Ah. Do you think there's always that one step back? As we said earlier, that's life. Mm. That is the joy and the sorrow of life, isn't it? And the beauty. And absolutely the beauty, and I think that's part of the moderni, just to to say thank you each day that we are here, no matter what the day holds for us. Thank you so much, Reverend so. My voice is beginning to go, and I've really enjoyed being with you. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you, Craig. We've got a lovely song to end, the Maccabees, and naturally seven shed a little light. <laughs> 